Good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Timothy, uh, one of the pastors here, and we'll be sharing with you again from the book of Ephesians and our current sermon series, Who We Are. Uh, I want to begin this morning with a story that I heard uh, not too long ago about a highly decorated naval officer. Uh, this officer just so happened to be the captain of a U.S. battleship, a very prestigious position to hold. And the captain was sailing late one night, and off in the distance he saw some faint lights, um, what appeared to be another ship. So immediately he told his signalman, send a message to this ship, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received, and it simply stated, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered uh, by the, the message. Uh, clearly the other sea captain did not know who he was. Uh, and so he decided, I'll just inform him who I am and clearly this will solve all this silliness. We'll get this out of the way. And he responded, he sent a return message. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am Captain Mitchell of the United States Navy. Soon another message was received Again, a response that was not pleasing. He said, alter your course, 10 degrees north, I am Seaman Third Class Jones. <laughs> now, now the captain was furious. This is not okay. How dare such a peon speak to me in such a way? And so he said, I'm gonna send one last message and I'm gonna put the fear of God in this young man. He says, alter your course, 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. Then the reply came, last response, simple response. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a lighthouse. And so <laughs> the point is submission, submission is difficult at times. I am claustrophobic. I can vividly remember as a child when my older brother wanted me to do something, he would pin me to the floor and he'd hold me down until I submitted and I would fight it try to wrestle out, but I couldn't escape, and eventually I'd submit. Um, and none of us, none of, none of us enjoy submitting. None of us enjoy relinquishing, well, ugh, relinquishing control and submitting to the authority of another. Uh, our society even heralds self-made men and women and props up being one's own boss as utopia. That's what we all should strive for. And yet we know there's nothing new under the sun. This struggle with submission has always existed. Even before mankind was created, Satan, one of the highest ranking angels, did not want to submit to God. And so Satan chose to try to usurp God's authority and was banished from heaven. We want to be in control. We want to be our own Lord and Savior. Actually, as we know, all sin is rooted in this desire, this desire to not submit to the authority of God, to want to be our own Lord and Savior. And our text this morning is all about submission. Not submission to God, but particularly submission to one another. And here in chapter six, Paul is beginning to flesh out what it looks like, as we've been talking, to live out this new identity that we have in Christ. Paul's main point is that at the end of the letter, this new identity should compel us to submit to one another. 
And here in chapter five and six, instead of Paul just making a blanket statement and saying submit, he chooses to make it plain for us, to break down exactly what that looks like, particularly in two spheres of life, both in the home and in the workplace. For the past two weeks, Daniel has unpacked what it looks like to submit in the home in relationship to husband and wife. This week, we're gonna look at what it looks like to live in this spirit-filled home, the relationship between children and parents. And then when Paul concludes his discourse on the home, he then shifts to the workplace, and we look at submission through the lens of slaves and masters. So that's where we're going this morning, the spirit-filled home and the spirit-filled workplace. Uh, I'd ask that you now, if you're able to stand, we're gonna read God's word. I'm actually gonna begin in chapter five, verse 21, the umbrella verse that covers this whole section, and then we'll jump to our text in chapter six. 521 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapter six, verse one, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, this text speaks to some institutions that are very core the very fabric of our society, the home and the workplace. We ask that you would hear what it looks like to live out the spirit-filled life in those places, in those spheres. God, help us to understand and hear from you. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So in terms of structure, I wanna approach this text a little bit differently this morning because Paul gives us a multitude of very specific instructions. And so I wanna walk through those verse by verse, unpacking the instruction, and then I wanna conclude with two major points of application. Another way to say this is we wanna look at first what Paul tells us to do, and then we wanna finish with the why, why we should in fact submit to Paul's directives. So let's begin, I wanna begin as Paul begins, the Spirit-Filled Home Part Two children and parents. So if there are children in the room, now would be the time to wake up. Again, Paul's major point here is that our identity that is in Christ has been radically transformed, both individually and corporately. 
And in light of this new identity, our life should look different. Every facet of our life should look different, particularly the home. And so that's what Paul is going to address here. Now, I realize that many of you don't have kids and you're thinking about hitting the snooze button now, but I do want to encourage you that many of you, a large portion of you, will be parents one day. And all of us have parents, whether adoptive or biological. And so this text really applies to all of us. I think that there's stuff here for each one of us. And so as we begin, we begin as Paul does, as he's done throughout this text, he begins with a subordinate group, with the children. And here he gives the children one, one instruction, one instruction only. It's very simple. It's to the point he says to obey. Children are to obey. We all know what obedience is. It's to do what is asked of you. So to all the children in the room, there are, for those of you that are with us still, Paul's point is clear. Because of your new identity in Christ, you are to obey your parents. Can I get an amen from a mom or a dad in the room? It's good news, that's right. But why? Why should children obey? Paul gives us three motivations here. The first one, he says, he begins by saying in verse one, he says, children should obey because this is right. So Paul begins by going to natural law. He says, this is just what's been set from the beginning of time. There is very few, if any, cultures that we have ever seen in the history of the world that have disagreed with this point, that children are meant to obey their parents. It's just right. It's just how it is. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues to go on. In verse 2, he says, not only do we do this because it's right, but he says, he goes into the Ten Commandments. He says there's natural law that says this is right, but it's also God's law that says it's right. God's law says honor your father and mother. I think there's a song that we know about this. Obey your parents, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that how it goes? We are called to obey, not just because the world says it's true, but God says it's true in his word. We have been given motivation in his word. And then finally, the third motivation he gives, lots of motivation here. Clearly, children need a lot of incentive to obey. I know I did growing up, but he's giving even a third motivation. And he says here that there's a promise that goes along with obedience for children. He goes back to the fifth commandment and he says that this promise for obedience is both prosperity and long life. Now at first glance, this appears to be some version of the prosperity gospel, uh, that if, if a child would obey, that they would receive health and wealth. Uh, and not only do we disagree with that theologically, but we also know from experience that's not true. There are countless numbers of children that have obeyed well and have not lived long lives and not experienced great prosperity. So what is Paul talking about here? I think that we have to remember, and this is helpful for us as we unpack this whole passage, who Paul is writing to. In the same sense, when he quotes the Ten Commandments, who Moses was writing to. Paul is writing to, going back to chapter one, verse one, to the saints, plural, He's writing to the community of believers, just like Moses was writing to the nation of Israel, to a group of people. And so when we read this text through our individualistic lens, which we love to do here in Western society, this passage makes no sense because it's assuming that the individual, if they obey, is gonna get health and wealth and prosperity. 
But when we read this through the corporate lens that Paul intends us to use, we begin to see that Paul is simply saying that obedience on the part of the child is good for all of society, that it blesses the whole community. And we know this to be true, don't we? We, 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 we see this all the time. Beginning really with my generation and following, there has been a great increase in children who have little to no respect for their parents. This is, begin, this is being cultivated in our culture. And as a result, what we see, it happens all the time, our society suffers when children begin to parent themselves at a very young age and have no respect or regard for their parents. And Paul is saying, God's wisdom is good, it's good for everyone. He's saying when children obey, it's good for society. It's good for the church, it's good for, for the whole world. And so he's, he's motivating uh, the, the whole society and, and as well as the church to, to lean into this wisdom of God and encouraging the children to obey. He then shifts to the parents. The children have instruction and also to the parents. Here he goes to verse, excuse me, verse four, and he says, fathers, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now some commentators try to be politically correct here and say that Paul is actually talking to fathers and mothers, that the Greek word here can be used for both, but they're actually wrong. Uh, clearly Paul is talking to dads because of this, he's speaking into a cultural moment. He's speaking into a time period where fathers had absolute power. They had absolute control over their children. One historian notes it this way, a Roman father has absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. There's a little historical context into which Paul is speaking. And so into that context, what does Paul say? Paul immediately addresses the gross atrocities of the day and he speaks to the injustice that exists in the current cultural system. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In spite of the fact that the culture said the the father had absolute power, Paul says, you need to curb that authority. Fathers, on some level, you need to submit to your own children. You need to be willing to put yourself under. Can you imagine how the dads were squirming in their seats hearing this? How dare you, Paul, tell me how to parent my own child? How dare you curb my authority and think that you have the right to do so? But Paul, once again, he is condemning the cultural norms of the day. He's speaking to a higher justice, a higher power. On the flip side, he doesn't just speak negatively to the fathers, but he also gives them positive instruction. He tells the fathers to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We hear this phrase often in Christian parenting circles, right? If you've been around any sort of Christian parenting teaching, you've heard this phrase quoted. I think it's important that we understand what they're saying. When when Paul uses this phrase, bring them up, the Greek verb here has within its root the idea of nourishing and feeding. It's a beautiful metaphor that we need to think about when we think about parenting, nourishing and feeding. Paul paints a picture of a father who is intimately involved in the upbringing of his children. Nourishing and feeding them, not just bringing home the bacon, 
and then coming and sitting in the Lazy Boy and checking out the latest episode of Sports Center. It's not what we see here. We see a, a father who's involved, who is feeding the child, feeding them the good news. What does this look like? How do we apply this to our current day? Paul's speaking to fathers, but obviously there's been a cultural shift, which is a good thing, and mothers and fathers have equal power over their children and authority. So this message is clearly for mothers and fathers. And Paul is saying that we as, as mothers and fathers should be involved in this nourishing and feeding of our children. And he gives us two tools. Look again at the passage. Verse four, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, those are our tools that we have to raise our children to know Christ. Discipline and instruction. Instruction is how we teach them how to live, how to walk, how to think. And the discipline is when we correct them, when they say, do, and think the wrong things. These are our two tools that we use and we feed and build into our children. Spirit-filled parenting is not easy. And I wanna just brief aside here, very practical. For those of you who have children and are seeking to do this, Paul's words are powerful, but the application is not easy. And parents, if you do not have other parents involved in your life, it's time to find some. You need to find some parents that are older than you, that have been doing it for a while, that are modeling this type of parenting, that you see them cultivating in their children a heart and love for God. And you need to ask them, how are you doing it? You need to ask them, help me. Help me in this journey to raise up my children to know and love Christ. It's not intuitive, it's not easy, and what Paul's asking us here is very, very difficult. So I challenge you, we have a lot of young parents in our midst and we need to be working together and encouraging one another in this journey. So church, that's the picture that we have here of this spirit-filled home. We have obedient children, and we have parents who don't abuse their power, even though they have the right to, but are nourishing and feeding their children with godly instruction and discipline. Somewhat anecdotally here, I want to highlight how doing this communicates something profound to a watching world. Uh, One of my first mentors was a guy named Matt Letourneau, and uh, he was a campus minister, and when I started doing campus ministry, he took me under his wing and shared many things with me, and One of the things that he said to me that always stuck with me is that he said most of his most successful evangelism happened by simply bringing people into his home. He said that he would bring people into his home and they would observe the way that he loved his wife and the way that his wife loved him. And it was so compelling and captivating that he told me countless stories of students that would end up committing their lives to Christ because they wanted what they saw in his home. They experienced this spirit-filled home life and they said, I've gotta have that. Now I know some of us hear that and think, man, if somebody came in my house, they are not gonna wanna worship Christ. And I get that, it's not always pretty in my house either. But the reality is when we apply this, when we listen to what Paul's saying here, and we begin to cultivate this kind of spirit-filled home light, we create an argument that is irrefutable to a watching world. We put on display God's glory and grace and mercy. And so may that be an even greater motivation for us to live this out, God's good wisdom in the home.
We move now to, as Paul does, to the workplace. So certainly this is applying to all of us, whether you have children or not. How do we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in the workplace? I need to begin by addressing the elephant in the room. Verse five says bond servants. Most translations translate this word as slaves. And I know why the ESV chooses to stay away from that because uh, it wants to create a, a differentiation between slavery in the Roman time and the slavery that we experienced in this country. And so I do want to give a brief cultural uh, explanation here so that we can see the difference of what Paul's talking about. So a little history. Slavery was a huge part of, of life in the ancient world. It's a huge part of the Roman society. And one of the main reasons this was is because there was no bankruptcy. When someone accumulated a huge debt, uh, instead of going to bankruptcy court and saying, hey, I'm, I'm in trouble, help, they became a slave. They became a slave to the one they owed a great debt to and they worked off that debt over time through the system of slavery. One uh, historian estimates there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, slaves included, as we might expect, domestic servants and manual laborers, but somewhat surprisingly, it even in times included doctors, teachers, administrators. There was this vast uh, well, uh, diversity in what a slave might be. And slavery was so accepted in society that we have almost no written record of any sort of discussion of the slave problem. It wasn't even talked about, it just was. But although it was accepted, that does not mean that it was not without its uh, gross atrocities and cruelties. Much like the system that we experienced in this, country, in this country, the slave owner had absolute power over their slave. And there was no checks and balances on the way that a slave owner, a master, would enforce discipline on his slave. And so the difficulty here as we enter into this text is why does Paul not immediately say we need to abolish this system? Why does he not put a stop to it? Isn't that what we would expect Paul to say here? And what I want to challenge you with, and this may not be satisfying, is that what Paul is saying is just as offensive as if he had said that. And so as we listen to his discussion of masters and slaves, I want you to hear that Paul is speaking hardcore against the norms of the culture that he is grinding on this system that had been established for a long time. So within that context, I wanna give you these instructions that Paul gives us. Paul says, verse five, much like to the children, that the instruction for the slaves is to obey their master. But noteworthy here is Paul, he qualifies that obedience. He speaks to the quality of the work that's being done. There are three qualifiers that he gives. It's to be done with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and not by way of eye service. I think what's interesting about these three qualifiers is that none of them have anything to do with the work that's being completed. All of the qualifiers address the heart attitude. Paul is concerned with the hearts of the slave. So look here, I wanna look at these briefly, each one of them, to be done with fear and trembling. The idea here is that a slave is not to be terrified of their master, but to revere the master, to have respect for the master. This is a heart attitude. And this obviously would have been extremely hard knowing all of the cruelties that would have been going on in this day and age. Secondly, Paul says that uh, they are to obey with a sincere heart. The slaves in the day had no option as to whether or not to actually do what was required of them. They had to do it or they'd be punished. But they did have complete control over their heart. 
And so Paul's speaking to that and he's saying, I want you to work on your heart. I want you to, to do your work in a way that honors that work. And it does it from a pure and sincere heart. And then lastly, not by way of eye service. There would have been no innate motivation for the slave to work hard when he wasn't being watched, right? He didn't have stock options. It didn't didn't matter how well the business did for him or her. But what Paul is saying, whether you're being watched or not, I'm calling you to work hard, to to work with all your heart, not just to appear to be a good worker, but to truly be a good worker. But why? Why should the slave even worry about these things? Why should the slave serve in this way? And the motivation here is a little foretaste of what we have to come. Verse six is telling, he says, not by way of eye service, but instead work hard at all times because the true master is watching. Verse six speaks to the slave and says, there is a true master that you have that's greater than your earthly master and he is watching and he will be the one who will reward you. More on that in a minute, but I wanna put that before you as why the slave's motivation mattered. What does this mean for you and I? How does this apply to us in the workplace? Very few of us actually have no boss, so we can relate here to the slave. We all work for someone, or at least most of us. And so in the same way, we are to revere our bosses, to think highly of them, to hold them in high esteem. And we are to work with a sincere heart. Whether we have stock options or not, we are supposed to seek the flourishing of the place that we work. We are, ho- we are supposed to work in such a way that we long for that business, that organization to flourish from the heart and then not by way of eye service. I think this is the hardest one. This really is the litmus test for us in the workplace, isn't it? The question that you should ask yourselves as, when you're at your job is does your work significantly decrease in quality when nobody's watching? What's your motivation? Why are you working hard? Is it to move up the ladder? Is it to please your boss? Is it to make a lot of money? Paul is calling us to work not by way of eye service, but we work because our Heavenly Father's watching and we work to honor and make his name great. Lastly, he speaks to the masters and gives this final instruction here and This one certainly would have been uh, to the point and offensive. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So again, Paul is saying something that would have made the dominant group bristle, saying that we, we, a master, have a responsibility to our slaves. Again, just like the father, he's calling the, the master on some level to submit to his employees. Culturally, the masters owed absolutely nothing to the slave, but Paul says, in the spirit-filled workplace, in this new world order that I'm created, you owe much to your slave. You owe them a goodness that comes from the sincere heart. Paul is transforming the way we think about work. And so that's the grand picture. There's a lot here. Uh, I want us to uh, just kind of sit in that for a second. We've got this total reorienting of the home and of the workplace. And I want to leave us now with two applications. Okay, that was a lot of data. It's what Paul gives us. But I want to focus now on why does it matter? What is Paul saying that's so profound? The first application I want to give you is the offensiveness 
of what Paul is saying. The offensiveness of Paul's instruction. In our, in our current cultural context, one of the common critiques of Christianity, and we know this to be true, is that it is sociologically old-fashioned. That Christianity is outdated. That we've lost touch with reality. And this offensiveness is often highlighted by the culture in terms of the way that the Bible speaks about women and slaves. And what's so ironic about that offense is that Paul's text would have been offensive for the exact opposite reason when he spoke it. It was far too culturally progressive. It was offensive in the exact opposite way that we are critiqued by the current culture. The thing that we so often miss and by far the most shocking thing in this text is that Paul speaks directly to women, children, and slaves. Three people that had no status whatsoever in society. And he names them. He calls them out when he's speaking to the covenant community. Husbands, masters, parents would have been appalled that he would be treating women, children, and slaves as ethically responsible people, as those who had a choice. Their rebuttal would have been, Paul, what are you doing? Why would you tell a wife to submit and a child and a slave to obey? That's what they have to do. They're required to do that. They don't have a choice in the matter. They're not human beings. They don't have value. Are you crazy, Paul? And Paul is making this profound point that in this new society that's birthed out of our identity in Christ, there is, verse nine, no partiality. The point is most profoundly made in reference to the lowest of these classes, to the slaves. Look again at the text. Verse eight says, The slave obeys knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Do you hear the point that Paul is making here? He's speaking to the master and he says, Master, do you realize that what your slave does, it matters to God. His work matters to God. And not only that, but God values the slave's work equally to the way he values your work that his labor has immense value to God. The work of the lowest paid individual has equal value to God to the CEO's labor. And none of us believe that. Our society says that's crazy, but in God's economy, it doesn't matter how much money, status, or power we have. God looks at the heart and he values the good work of every individual equally. I wanna press that application on us. To the wealthy amongst us, do you recognize that the work that the people who work under you do is of equal value to your own? Your employees' work matters equally to God. How might you treat them differently if you believe that? For those amongst us that consider yourselves less fortunate, do you recognize that your work matters deeply to God in spite of what you get paid for it? And do you believe that God will reward you for every good work that you do? Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the offensiveness of the Bible is not that it devalues women or children or the poor. The offensiveness of the Bible is it does the exact opposite. That it values, it equally values men and women, parents and children, rich and poor, They're all equal in the sight of God, equally deserving of God's love and grace. Leads to our final application. This is what I want to leave you with. How do we do this? How do we submit to one another? How do we live this out? 
If you've been paying close attention to the text, you'll notice I've conspicuously left out certain words and phrases, and all these phrases point to the means, the power by which we do this. Look at, again, at verse 21. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Lord. The only way we succeed in living the spirit-filled life, living a life of submission, is by recognizing that our submitting to one another is ultimately being done in our ultimate submission to our Heavenly Father. That we submit to one another is an act of obedience and love to Christ. Listen to church, listen to the text. Church, verse 25, excuse me, chapter five, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse one, obey your parents in the Lord. Chapter six, verse four, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then to the slaves where he's most profound. Verse five, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. Verse six, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Verse seven, rendering the service as goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. This is Paul's closing argument, verse nine. He says, masters, do the same to them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. This is the essence of the new society. In the face of a culture that demands there be a hierarchy, God says we are equal, that everyone is the same. And that sameness comes from the fact that we all serve the same master. We are co-slaves co-slaves in Christ, united in service, one another to God. And so when we get this, we realize that all our work is done to his glory, to his honor, not to man. When, When we love our spouses, we do it for him. When we obey our parents, we do it for him. When we have gentle parenting, Techniques, we do it for God. When we have a sincere heart that's in, driven in our work, we do it for God. And our dignity-driven care for our employees is done for God. They're done with God in mind. We do them as though we do them directly for Him. Church, I hope and pray that when we recognize the great love and mercy that God has poured out on us and we apply that to our work, that our work will go from being a duty to a delight. When we realize we're serving him who has served us much, who has loved and served us first and that our love and our work and our labor is in response to his initiation. That our work every day, day in and day out, in the home, in the workplace, would become a joy. I ran into one of our members at a coffee shop a few days ago and he challenged me that we needed to get together. He said something that at first I thought was bizarre. He said, he said I've got something that you need. And in, in a mo- for a moment in my pride, I thought, no you don't. Don't you realize I've been to seminary and I have ministry experience? I got, I've got this under control. And I was the battleship saying, no, you, you turn your course 10 degrees north. But as I allowed the word to press on me, I was reminded of how right he was. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need to submit to one another, and it's really hard. It requires that God-given, Holy Spirit-fueled humility. But when we allow the Spirit to apply these words to our heart and embrace that we are all co-slaves to Christ, then and only then will we begin to experience the riches of this new society that God has graciously called us to. 
I just want to close with Paul's words in verse 21. Brothers and sisters, let us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are a lot of detailed instruction there. Paul gives us a to-do list that's long and it's hard. But Lord, would that to-do list become more manageable when we realize that when we labor, when we work, we work for your honor and your glory. When we parent, when we obey our parents, when we work in the workplace, when we work for our boss and when we work with our employees, we do it all for your glory because you are our true master. You are watching and you are delighted in our excellent work. So Father, would we work not for man but for you and know that your reward is great. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.